The Internet Security Research Group, ISRG. Probably not a name you're super familiar with unless security is a part of your job. The ISRG was founded in May of 2013 with a really important mission to reduce the financial, technological, and educational barriers to securing communication over the internet. Now it's more likely that you've heard of their flagship project. It's called Let's Encrypt. Let's Encrypt is a wonderful certificate authority. It's easy to use and it makes the process of obtaining and implementing certificates as a part of your website super simple. Josh Ose and Sarah Gran from ISRG join me today to talk about some of the other projects that they have and also to talk about the fact that Let's Encrypt is not just for websites. We'll learn more after the break. My name is Michael Lynn, and this is the MongoDB Podcast. MongoDB World is returning to New York City. MongoDB World 2022, the future runs on MongoDB. It's a conference for creators, disruptors, and transformers of tomorrow. You can register today. Head on over to mongodb.com world-2022. Join us from June 7th through the 9th for three days of announcement-packed keynotes, hands-on workshops, deep dive technical sessions that'll give you the tools you need to build and deploy mission critical applications at scale. We've got a special offer for you folks. There's a, a discount code, it's podcast. Use the code podcast to get 25% off the currently already discounted rate. Head on over to mongodb.com world 2022. Remember to use the code podcast for your special discount. Hello, I'm Sarah Gran. I am the VP of Communications and Fundraising at ISRG, the nonprofit behind Let's Encrypt and our other projects, Prosimo and Divi Up. I've been at ISRG since early 2016. And I remember when I started, I felt like I had kind of missed all the buzz and excitement because Let's Encrypt had already launched and I'd known Josh for a long time and had been talking with him about this process. But as it turns out, years later, there was a lot of excitement yet ahead. And here we are today with three great projects and a certificate authority that is serving a huge portion of the web. I'm Josh Ose. I'm the executive director at ISRG. I helped start the organization in 2013, I think is when we got going, didn't really become public until 2015. So I've been working on this for eight or nine years now. And I'm very excited. We're still here, you know, as Sarah said, if we're still around, still doing good work. I used to work for an organization called Mozilla on a browser called Firefox. And one of, you know, my job there for a while was to run the networking team and then work on some strategy stuff for Mozilla. And one of the biggest problems we had back then was the fact that so many websites were not using HTTPS. So just a huge percentage of the web was not encrypted. And if we're working on a browser, that's a really frustrating problem because you want to provide a secure experience to everyone that's using your browser. But if there's no, you know, transport layer encryption, there's only so much you can do, right? Like your users are just vulnerable all over the web and no amount of code you write in the browser is going to make that better. So it's a very frustrating problem to think like, well, we can't do much to help our users in this respect. 
if we can't figure out how to get hundreds of millions of websites to switch to HTTPS, it just seems seemed at the time like a pretty almost insurmountable task, right? I mean, today it just seems ubiquitous. Uh, I mean, I don't think I've visited a non-HTTPS website and I mean, I can't remember. To what do you, do you attribute that, uh, the success of, of, you know, deploying that type of technology? Well, at the time, we thought about a lot of different options. You know, how do we get there? And we were really looking for options that were going to get us to nearly 100% encryption in a, in a relatively quick amount of time. You know, we didn't, we didn't want to be on the IPv6 timeline where we say where we want to go. And, you know, 20 years later, we're not even close to the goal. We wanted something that we thought would work relatively quickly. So we talked to a lot of people about why their websites aren't encrypted. And we realized that, you know, most people want to do the right thing. Most people want to turn on encryption. It's just, it was kind of a pain. And the main pain point was that it was difficult to get the TLS certificates that you need or the SSL certificates. People had trouble figuring out, you know, where should I get it from? Which kind of search should I get? Is it affordable? can I automate this or is it going to be like a big manual process issue all the time? It just was really difficult to get and manage the certificates that you need for TLS. And it felt to us like if we could solve that problem, we'd solve most of the problem. Then people would hopefully just start turning on TLS a lot more frequently. And I think that theory has turned out to be true for the most part. You know, we started Let's Encrypt with a focus on making sure that certificates were free, but also really easy to get. You know, all this stuff is really in service of ease of use. Even the fact that it's free, you know, certificates could be cheap. They could be pennies. But if we charged anything, even if it was pennies, you'd have to go find a credit card. You'd have to enter that. What do we do when your credit card expires? You're going to have to set up some kind of billing system. If you're inside a corporation, you want to set up a little website, you're going to go get a credit card approval from your finance department. There's like a lot of friction around payment regardless of how much the actual payment is. So we just want to get to get rid of that and then also just make the experience on the technical side really easy. There should just be a client or a piece of software that gets the cert for you. It should happen in a matter of seconds. It should be really easy to automate that and have it renew automatically. So we had this really big focus on ease of use when we built Let's Encrypt. And now it's pretty easy to get certificates. And I think we're at 90, maybe 93% in the United States for encrypted page loads. I think it's 82 worldwide. But I think in a lot of, I think that's not reflective of everybody's experience. I think that's the average. You know, I'm not, I have this theory that a lot of the unencrypted page loads are sort of clustered in inside corporate environments, like intranet type applications. So if you're on one of those things, maybe you have more, unencrypted page loads. But if you're like me, like I have my browser set to not even load pages that aren't encrypted and I rarely encounter that. So, you know, for me personally, I'm pretty close to 100% HTTPS and that's exciting. So yeah, I think fixing the certificate problem on the web was a big part of the solution. And I say part because it's not, it's not the only thing that happened. You know, there's been a lot of great advocacy and research work. There's been a lot of improvement in the other tools that people use to administer and run websites. A lot of hosting providers have decided to just make certificates the default instead of sort of an add-on service. The browsers have done a really great job of essentially pushing people in the right direction. You know, it was a big deal to make things like geolocation require HTTPS. So if you want to use more powerful modern features on the web, the browsers won't let you unless the connection is using HTTPS. There's a lot of, been a lot of work done on the user interface stuff around HTTPS. So the browsers have done a great job. Researchers, 
software developers and other tools. It all came together to get us where we want to be pretty quickly. And just just to put a fine point on where it is that we came from, Josh mentioned that now today, HTTPS page loads are over 90% in the US and over 80% globally. But when Let's Encrypt launched, that was less than 40%. 39% of page loads were encrypted at that time. And that's after this technology had been available for 20 years. In 20 years, that's all the progress that had been made. So it is really amazing that the web has made such a significant and broad-reaching change in such a short period of time. And a lot of that is attributed to exactly like Josh was saying, the wide variety of people coming at this problem from different angles to help support moving it forward. So let's talk a little bit about how MongoDB uses Let's Encrypt. I mean, we we have a, a long and storied relationship even prior to becoming a user of Let's Encrypt. So Sarah, maybe you want to talk a little bit about the relationship between MongoDB and Let's Encrypt? Sure. MongoDB has been a longtime partner of ours. MongoDB actually became a financial sponsor of Let's Encrypt prior to even getting a single certificate from us. Let's Encrypt and ISRG are 501c3 nonprofits. So we're able to do our work because companies like Mongo have supported us. And it was a great start to the relationship to hear that Mongo was invested in us making the change to the web that we were hoping. And then the story got more interesting when we heard from some folks a year or two later at MongoDB that you all were interested in actually using Let's Encrypt certificates. So today, every time you spin up a cluster in Atlas, TLS is a requirement, and that comes from Let's Encrypt. So we are now providing many certificates to MongoDB customers. And we think this is a pretty interesting use case for our certificates because it's a little bit different than what many people might think of as a standard use for a Let's Encrypt certificate, basically on a website. And to show that these certificates are useful for protecting all of Atlas's client data and all intra-cluster network communications is a cool example of how TLS really needs to be at all of those layers of an infrastructure when you have that kind of connection. You mentioned the Let's Encrypt certificates are free. They're created by the users of Let's Encrypt from the command line or via an API. And this obviously costs you money. I mean, obviously, you've got infrastructure in place. You've got to maintain a high level of security. I'm sure you have operating expenses. How are you able to do that? Well, we are a nonprofit. And we ask that people who care about security and privacy on the internet for themselves or for everyone else help contribute to making this work possible. So... Let's Encrypt operates on a budget of about $4 million every year, and the majority of that cost goes toward our staff. We have site reliability engineers and a team of software engineers that maintain both our older CA code and 
the certificate authority itself. And that requires a sizable team of people. So the majority of the money that we raise for Let's Encrypt goes directly into supporting those people, making the CA happen. And we're glad to have MongoDB as a longtime supporter of that work. And I love the transparency. Uh, that's, I, I believe that's one of your key operating principles. You want to talk a little bit about those principles? Yeah, transparency is pretty important to us. You know, running a certificate authority is all about trust. If people don't trust you, then really nothing else you do matters. And transparency, I think, is at the heart of, you know, if you're going to ask people to trust you, you should be transparent about what you're doing. So we're transparent at a bunch of different levels. There's a lot of information out there about, you know, our policies and how we run our service. There's our CP and CPS documents you can find on our website. But we also have, for example, a lot of open source software. So we don't exist to create open source software. We exist to run a surface a service, but open source is important to us. And if you want to see how our CA works, there's a repository on the Let's Encrypt GitHub organization called Boulder. And that's the software we use to run the CA. So you can see exactly how we do things. So yeah, we've got a, a great community that we work with that helps answer questions and disseminate information about what we're doing. The Boulder project, is that an open source project? Do you take pull requests? We do take pull requests. What I would say, though, is Boulder is really intended to work on our infrastructure. So it's not something that we really recommend that other people run because it's just not general purpose software. It's deployed in a very specific certificate authority environment. So people definitely contribute pull requests now and again, but it's it's not common. It's the purpose of the open source, it being open source, is more for the sake of transparency than it is to try to build up a large developer community. The needs of our certificate authority are pretty specific, and we, we're we not really able to develop the software in such a way that it's generalized and, and works for a lot of other people. So I'm curious about the other projects within ISRG. Do you want to talk a little bit about some of those? Sure. So we started Lots Encrypt, you know, publicly announced it in 2015. Since then, we've started two more projects. So the second project that we have is called DiviUp. And in in more general terms, the technology behind it is called privacy-preserving metrics. And the idea here is people, you know, organizations that create applications, whether they're on a cell phone or the web, they want to collect metrics from their users. And sometimes that's about the performance of their apps or sort of meta information about how their applications are working. And sometimes the collection of metrics is part of the actual functionality of the application itself, the content of the app itself. And there's always been this tension between organizations wanting to get data and user privacy. And we're trying to do something to deal with that tension in a better way. So we want to get the organizations the data they need about their users in aggregate without actually collecting individual user data. So the technology behind our DiviUp service works essentially by the application will take the metrics data from users and break it into two different pieces. There will be some local anonymization applied to those pieces on the device or on the website or something. And then each piece gets encrypted for a different destination. One piece will come to ISRG or our DiviUp project, and another piece will go to a second provider who's running essentially the same service. And we'll take a bunch of that user data in batches, which by the time it gets to us is unintelligible because it's been split in half. We don't really know what it means. It's just a bunch of numbers to us. And we sum those numbers all together and, and do some math on that and produce what we call a partial aggregate sum. 
And the other provider is doing exactly the same thing. And once we've created this aggregate sum, we throw away all the data that we got from the devices, from individual devices. Then we send those two partial sums back to the application developer where they can zip them together. And that produces the final aggregate data about the entire population of users. But nobody along the way, like once the device, once the data leaves your device, nobody can really interpret or understand your data. So it really helps a lot with user privacy, but also gives organizations access to the aggregate data that they need. So we think this is a pretty big deal. It's it's applicable to just about every application out there, every cell phone app, every website. And, you know, organizations want to collect data without violating privacy. They don't want the liability that comes with sitting on a bunch of individual user data. And the system really just solves that problem. And what stage is the project at today? So we've actually deployed a version of this already for COVID-19 exposure notification applications. So if you are running exposure notification functionality on your iOS or Android device, there's a good chance that we are the service or one of the service providers behind that. And we built that. We got asked to do that. And I think September of 2020, and by the end of the year, within less than three months, we had built out the whole system. So we've been learning a lot from running that exposure notification platform for a while now. And what we're doing is taking the lessons learned there, creating a more refined public specification for the technology with some of our partners, and then building it out so it's a service we can offer to everyone else. And just like Let's Encrypt, we want to have a really big focus on ease of use. One of the most unfortunate things about the internet today is that there's so many pieces in anything that you do. Just to set up a little website, right? You got to deal with SSL certs. You got to configure HTTP headers. You got all your SSL parameters. You know, there's all sorts of knobs to tweak to make sure you're doing the right thing. And, you know, if you're running an application, you don't, you know, metrics are just one part of what you're doing, Right? So we just need to make that as easy as possible so that they can make the right choice about user privacy without having to spend too many resources on that. Because otherwise, they're going to make the choice to skip it. Right, They're just going to say, well, this is a little less safe, but we don't have time to do the safer thing. We Again, just like Let's Encrypt, we need to make our Divi Up service as easy to use as possible so that it's just so easy to do the right thing. What a great project. And it seems like a natural extension, really well aligned with the mission. And I want to let folks know, check the the show notes. I'm going to include links for more information on these projects and to ISRG. Uh, What other projects are you working on at the uh, ISRG? So our third project is called Prosimo, and it's related to bringing better memory safety to the internet's most critical software. So a lot of the software that we rely on on the internet is written in either C or C++, sometimes assembly, but, but mostly C. And these languages are not memory safe, meaning it's pretty easy for programmers to make errors in how they manage memory. And those errors often lead to memory safety vulnerabilities. So if you've got a phone and you've ever checked the release notes for a software update on your phone, you know, iOS, Android, whatever, look at the list of software vulnerabilities. It is pretty consistently one long list of memory safety vulnerabilities. It's memory corruption, use after free, buffer overflows, all that kind of stuff. Not everything is that, but a pretty large percentage of it. You know, I think maybe 70% for most larger tech companies, our major vulnerabilities are memory safety issues. The interesting thing about this problem, like we've got a lot of problems on the internet, right? A lot of things that we could do better. The interesting thing about this problem is that we know how to solve it. 
there are lots of other problems I don't know how to solve. You know, I don't know how to solve programmers. I, I don't know how to stop programmers from making logical, you know, logic bugs in applications. I don't know how to solve, you know, IPv6 adoption. We do know how to solve memory safety, not just mitigate it, but just solve it. We have safer languages. And now we have languages that are safer and work on a systems level. So C was always attractive because it doesn't have a runtime. It's very fast. So the goal has always been, you know, the dream has always been to have a fast system level language with no runtime that's also memory safe. And we have that now, at least in Rust. So we want to try to take this really central internet software infrastructure and move it away from C and C++ to safer languages. Now, there's a lot of C code in the world, a lot of C++ code out there. We're not trying to change all of it. We're not trying to do the top 1,000 projects or even the top 100 projects. We're really trying to find, like, literally what are the top 10 most important things that the internet depends on, and let's make that stuff safer. So if you go to memorysafety.org, you can see a list of what we're working on. So a great example so far, like, the internet really depends on the Linux kernel. That's just at the heart of everything. That is 3 million lines of C code you know, frequently suffering memory safety vulnerabilities. It's going to take a long time to change that, right? Like, I'm not under the illusion that we're going to move the Linux kernel to a safer language in a few years. That's not going to happen. But we need to get started. The Linux kernel is going to be around a long time. The internet's going to be a lot around a long time. There's a huge time horizon for investments to pay off, even if they're big long-term investments. So, you know, we have Miguel Ojeda, contracting with ISRG's Prosimo project, and he's working on adding Rust as a second language to the Linux kernel so that people can start writing device drivers and other components in Rust, which is a memory-safe language. He's doing great work. You know, honestly, when we started this project, I knew that the Linux kernel was obviously maybe the most essential piece of the modern internet, but I thought it was so difficult. Even with my like extreme optimism and ambition about this stuff, I left it off the list. But man, they have made great progress. It's really incredible. It's getting pretty pretty close, I think, to getting merged. Yeah, he's doing great work. So then we're also looking at DNS. You know, a lot DNS is a huge part of how the internet works. Again, millions of lines of C code. We have so much evidence that this is dangerous, right? It's a problem. Let's fix it. It's gonna take a little while. It's gonna take a little work, but we can do it. Like this world is full of talented software engineers. It's not an insurmountable problem. So we're we're working on uh, investing in some DNS implementations that are much safer than what's out there today. We just signed a contract to get a much safer NTP implementation for network time. We have invested pretty heavily in a, in a new TLS library called Russell's that we ultimately hope someday will replace OpenSSL in the ecosystem. Um, you know, OpenSSL is as notorious as anything else for its security issues, many of which are related to the fact that it's written in C. You know, I really hope that 10, 20 years from now, we're not still running TLS stacks that are written in C. I hope we, I hope we learn along the way. So we want to, yeah, our goal is to bring about that safer future for the really central, most important software on the internet. And this project is a little bit different from the Let's Encrypt project or Divi Up in that we aren't writing or maintaining most of the code that we are trying to influence or improve. Prosimo is focused on awareness, education, advocacy, and developing really clear strategies for how to make a meaningful impact and difference in 
a small handful of the most important security sensitive software that exists out there. And we have developed a process for first identifying what the risk is to the software, how vulnerable it is to memory and safety vulnerabilities. And then we calculate the opportunity and the degree to which there's four things that we look at. Is there a library or component that can be used across a lot of different projects, meaning that this impact can scale? Can we efficiently replace key components with a memory-safe library? Are funders willing to fund this work? And are the maintainers on board and cooperative? And so with that set of four criteria, we have built out a small list of initiatives that we're focused on in order to really make sure that this work has high impact at a reasonable cost and is supporting the developers and maintainers who have worked long and hard to make it so popular and essential. How is it possible that you're able to fund this and and track this and manage this over that great period of time? Well, like Sarah said, we you know we identify the projects based on some risk criteria, and then we look for opportunity for each project that we identify that seems like it has good opportunity. We we sit down and make a really clear plan, and we go out and talk to the maintainers, we talk to users, we talk to the community, and we make the clearest plan we can for what a roadmap looks like to get to a memory safe future. In a lot of cases, like Sarah mentioned, you know, the answer is not to just go rewrite it from scratch. The answer is to try to do it modularly, piece by piece over time. Not only is that more realistic in a lot of cases, but it gives you it gives you gains more immediately, right? Like you can take an existing piece of software like curl, which is really important and really ubiquitous. Now, I don't think it makes sense to rewrite curl from scratch in a new language. And I don't think the maintainer of curl thinks that either. So we're not going to do that. We're going to, you know, we went out and we had someone swap out OpenSSL for the Russell's TLS library. That's something you can use today. We had, so we, we contracted with the maintainer to, to swap out the C-based HTTP implementation in curl and replace it with a memory-safe HTTP implementation. So right now you can go build curl if you want, and you can build it with memory-safe HTTP and TLS networking, and that's available today. We didn't need to rewrite curl from scratch to do that. And on top of this, a really interesting thing, I think, is that you know, the maintainer of curl didn't even have to learn Rust you know, to do this work. These, these memory-safe libraries come with C APIs. So a C programmer working on an existing project can just take the C wrappers around these memory-safe libraries and put them right in there, and they don't even need to learn a new language. That's huge. So we think a lot. We spend a lot of time thinking about how we can get plans that work for the maintainers, do this piece by piece. In a lot of cases, you don't even have to learn the new language. And we try to invest in those modular pieces like the, the our investment in the Russell's TLS library is going to pay off all over the place. So there's a lot of projects where we can go and just remove OpenSSL and replace it with Russell's. All with the goal of a safer internet. So that's amazing. That's great work. So these are projects that are in play today. Do you want to talk a little bit about what the future looks like? Are there, are there things on the roadmap? I'm sure there are other things that we'll do. We have a certain amount of organizational capacity and we're pretty focused on building up, especially the Divi Up project these days. Because that's a service, it's, it's pretty resource intensive. And so we're very focused on building that up. We're always looking for other opportunities to make a difference when it comes to privacy and security on the web. But 
you know, we're probably not going to launch a whole new project every year or anything like that. So I'm not really sure what'll be next. You know, we're getting projects two and three off the ground here. You know, I neglected to ask about the revenue model for ISRG. I mean, I know you're a, a nonprofit, but the Divi Up service, is that is that a fee for service or is that something that's also offered for free or for a donation? The work that we're doing with COVID-19 exposure notification apps has been funded through grants and sponsorships. However, long-term, the general availability version of Divi Up will likely have a sliding scale model of payment where we need to cover the infrastructure costs for providing the service along with the uh, staff members who will maintain it. And our hope is that we will have revenue generated from customers who can pay, who will help support the important efforts on the internet that need this kind of protection and security and privacy, but don't have great financial resources. And that will help make this more broadly available to more organizations with different types of capacities more quickly. Yeah. The fundamental difference here is that to give someone a TLS certificate, you know, I'm not really sure what it costs, but it's it's pretty cheap. It, you know, we do hundreds of millions of active certificates. We do millions of certificates per day, and we do that on a budget of $4 million a year. So when you can get that kind of efficiency out of the service, it makes it makes sense that you can just do it for free. Divi up is potentially a lot more data coming from users, a lot more processing costs. It's just not possible to provide that to everyone for free as much as we would like to. So we are going to have to charge, like Sarah said been a great discussion. So we'll include links in the show notes for all of the projects, as well as for ISRG. Uh, you can visit a betterinternet.org for more information there. But check the show notes for all of the details. Sarah, Josh, thanks so much for your time today. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Thanks so much to Sarah and Josh for joining us today. And thanks to you for listening. If you want to check out more information about ISRG, visit abetterinternet.org. Check out their projects, Let's Encrypt, Prosimo, and Divi Up. Have a great day.